0: we are in Genesis 16. Everyone's talking about 2020 vision. Everyone from the place where I get my glasses to pretty much every pulpit across the country, if not the world, you know, last week especially, and I, my family went to another church. Yeah, we church hopped last week. And visited a church in Oak Harbor and had a great time. I know the pastor and his wife there. It's at Life Church. Michael Hurley and Rashawn, great people, love Jesus, and we really enjoyed it. It was fun just to kind of go and 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 just sit and see how others are doing it, which really wasn't that different than how we do it. But I enjoyed it. The, the teaching was 2020 vision, and if you look up any. Pastor, teacher that you like, any church that you like, I almost guarantee last Sunday, 2020 was somewhere in the title, so I took it out of mine. <laughs> but everyone's talking about this. 2020 vision. We need clear vision for 2020, and of course, it's a word play. But the Bible says in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. <laughs> but happy is he who keeps the law. King James says, where there is no vision, the people Perish. And other translations will translate it slightly differently, where there is no vision, people are unrestrained, they perish, they run wild. Well, which one is it? Well, the word that is translated unrestrained, and again, this is Proverbs 29:18, is yipperah in the Hebrew, yipperah, And what it means literally is let loose. Let loose, as in hair that's been cut or has been unbraided, we would say, you let your hair down. Well, that's that's what the word would indicate in the Hebrew. It can also indicate running wild, as in wild horses running across a plain. And it can also translate, and I think this is probably the most accurate of the three, or the most intended here, it can translate as being heedless, where there is no vision people run wild they are heedless as in allowing something of significance something that matters to slip between the fingers to lose grasp of what is most important where there is no vision we don't know whether where we're not being told where we're going or what's ahead we, we get out of control Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. That's vision. Everything has been granted to us so that we might see, see by his divine power what pertains to life and godliness. But without vision, without true godly vision, we come undone. Our hair goes wild. Mine does it all the time. (laughs) We lose control, and we let what really matters slip through our fingers. See, the devil knows this. Satan is fully aware of this. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's your vision. That's what we need to see. That's what the devil knows if he can just blind us to the glory of Christ. If he can dissuade us from the significance of the supremacy of Jesus, then we will begin to run wild. If he can cause us to let the truth of Jesus slip between our fingers. So, This is is all you're going to get in terms of a 2020 vision sermon. Okay, this is the pre-sermon sermon. sermon. I'm not charging anyone for this this morning. But if you want to perceive the world, understand the real world in truth, and in legitimate spiritual perception, we would say discernment, more than anything else, we need an accurate vision of God. We need to see God. That's why our prime question as we continue through Genesis 16 is what does this book tell us of God? And keep in mind, John 14, 9, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Amen? Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we're asking that you would clear our vision of every other thing but you. That we might see you and therefore see the Father. That we might know you and therefore know God. That we might, Lord Jesus, draw near to you and be near to the God who made us. And pray, Lord Jesus, that even in the text this morning before us, that you would give us spiritual insight and spiritual discernment, words of life, but more that we would come to you Because it is these that testify of you. I thank you for the reminder. It's constant and you stay before us. We pray that you will continue to, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. The Holy Spirit, teach us your word this morning in Jesus' name, amen. If you pick up again in verse 7, and Steve already read these verses for us, but Kind of a hinge section of chapter 16, verse seven. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to shore. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? It's an amazing story in so many different ways. But before we get there, maybe you've seen the old cartoon caricature. There's a famous slogan that went along with it. We don't hear it so much these days, but it's, kind of embedded in Americana, a bald face with a big nose peering over a wall, and next to him the phrase, Kilroy was here. Remember that? That used to show up a lot. In fact, a similar cartoon known as Mr. Chad showed up in Great Britain in the mid-1930s. In fact, we think that's where the cartoon image came from, Mr. Chad, there in, in Britain. Mr. Chad was doodled throughout the Country of Great Britain as a commentary on the shortages and rations of World War II that were going on. so Mr. Chad 's message wasn 't "Kilroy was here. Mr. Chad 's message was, "What no tay?" <laughs> or "What? No sugar?" And it was anything in response to the rationing. American soldiers, apparently at that time, saw Mr. Chad and took that image and added their own phrase, "Kilroy was here." Kilroy was here, and this began to show up everywhere. But no one really knew where it was coming from. Who who came up with the idea? Kilroy was here. Why that name? Why that phrase? Well, in 1946, the American Transit Association held a radio contest to figure out why. What does this come from? One of the contestants was a man who lived in Quincy, Massachusetts, working at the Bethlehem Steel Shipyards there. And during the war, this this gentleman inspected both tanks and the hulls of warships. That was his main job, inspect them to make sure the job was done correctly. And his name was James J. Kilroy. In his own words, he said, I started my new job with enthusiasm, carefully surveying the inner bottom and tank before issuing a contract. But I was thoroughly upset to find that practically every test leader I met wanted me to go back down and look over his job with him again. When I explained that I'd already checked the job and couldn't spare the time to crawl through one of those tanks again, I was accused of not having looked the job over. I was getting sick of the accusations, and one day I came through a manhole of a tank I'd just surveyed, and I angrily marked with yellow crayon at the tank top, right where the tester could see it, Kilroy was here. True story. True story. James Kilroy provided corroborating statements from men he worked with at the shipyard and said he assumed the shipyard workers who had seen his mark and joined the military took the phrase with them into the war and began writing it all over Europe. Kilroy was here. So there you go. He won the grand prize, which, by the way, was a 12-ton trolley streetcar. (laughs) This is what we did in 1946. Anyway, some people still see God as Kilroy, Kilroy was here, God was here, a quizzical, powerless image peering over a wall, or perhaps an anonymous tagger scrawling his mark, the Bible, and then just disappearing. Kilroy was here, a handmaid named Hagar came to see God for who he really is. And this is her story. She said in verse 13, you are a God who sees. Suddenly we have a new name for God. This is fascinating to me because Hagar is the only person to name God in the Hebrew scriptures. He is always named. He names himself. He declares his own name. But here, this runaway slave names him, not Kilroy, not even Kiljoy. But Elroy, Elroy is here. Elroy in the Hebrew, you are God who sees. God who sees. So far in Genesis alone, he's been called Elohim, God. Genesis chapter one and throughout. He's been called Yahweh in Genesis chapter two, I am. He's also been called Yahweh Elohim, I am God. In chapter 14, we note he's called El Elyon, God Most High. Or Yahweh, El Elyon, I am God Most High. In chapter 15, verse 2, he's referred to as Adonai, which we translate Lord. But now in chapter 16, we meet him as El Roy. He receives the naming. He makes sure it's recorded in Scripture, Elroy, God who sees. If you note in verse 14 Hagar calls the place of his appearance Beer Lahai Roy which is well of the living one who sees me. Well of the living one who sees me or the living one seeing me and I read over and over and over this over the holidays and realized how much I needed to hear this personally. I need a God who sees me. Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you're doing just fine. But I need a God who sees me. You know what? I don't have a pastor who sees me. Ever thought about that? Pastor Rick doesn't have a pastor. It's not fair. Let me tell you something. You don't have a pastor who sees you either. (laughs) We place way too much emphasis on our human leaders, don't we? Assuming that they do know or should know or should be a little more divine in, in their understanding of the world about. And, and I'm here to tell you it's not true. You do not have a pastor who sees you at home. I'm not there. I don't have any idea what's going on. You don't have a pastor who sees you in the workplace, a pastor who sees you in the moment of crisis. I know there are some of you who you see Pastor Les coming and you think to yourself, he knows, he just knows. Let me tell you, I love Les. Where are you? There you are, brother. Les and I talk almost every day. I know he doesn't know. You do not have a pastor who sees you, not here, not in terms of in the flesh today. Oh, we have a chief shepherd. We have a a Jesus who pastors us and sees us, but there are no church leaders, there are no pastors, there are no ministers here at the bridge or at any other church who can see into your life. There's only one God who sees. You don't even have friends, family, or I'll even say spouses who can see into your heart in the intimate, immediate. And you may think, wow, my husband, my wife knows me better than anybody. Okay, perhaps they do. They still can't see what's running around in your heart in the moment, which is why we have marital crisis, why husbands and wives can't ever seem to always get along. Don't you understand me yet? No, I can't see. But we have a God who sees. What human being can divine every thought, apprehend every anxiety, preemptively perceive your crises? There is none Don't be fooled. There is only one who sees. We have a God who sees. And Hagar, the handmaid, figured it out. She saw the God who saw her. Well, let's let's back up and see the whole story. Beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham or Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and this was completely culturally appropriate. This is what you did. If a wife couldn't bear children, it was absolutely fine. You can look it up in some of the ancient Eastern codes, the, the Code of Hammurabi. Provides for this. If the wife cannot bear children, then the maid can bear children and the children then become the property of the wife as if she bore them herself. So surrogacy. And this is a thing. It's been a thing for ages. Not a problem culturally, but note this, it is never divinely approved. God doesn't say, hey, Sarai, tell Abram to take Hagar. Go in with her because I, I need a little help here. I know I told you you'd have a son, but I'm beginning to realize, you know, God's just starting to figure out, huh, maybe it's not going to work. we got to find another way. Oi! <laughs> what, a, what a humanistic view of God. That's, see, that's where Elroy becomes Kilroy, where you don't understand who, who God is, but he's so patient. I love that about the Father, that he does not divinely ordain this, but he's gonna work with them anyway. He will work with us even when we blow it big time, which they are about to do. Men in Abram's day did this all the time. The lineage outweighed the marital relationship among human beings. Not so with the Lord. Not so with the Lord. Relationship is at the very paramount of what matters to God. And Sarai knows She knows the promise of God, but she thinks that she can help him get the job done. How interesting. Of course, you might agree with her. Hey, the Bible, doesn't it say God helps those who help themselves? No, (laughs) it does not. Benjamin Franklin said that. Chalk that one up to Benny. That is not the Bible. In the Bible, it's grace and peace, not elbow grease. Grace and peace, not elbow grease. But that is hard to swallow for the self made man, the overachieving woman, the person who thinks, I can help God along. Sarai had heard, she knew the promise. Abram knew the promise. Now they're just feeling like, well, but it's not happening, so we've got to help him. And yet, what does the Lord teach us again and again? Isaiah 30, verse 15, Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and in trust is your strength. But you were not willing. Jesus picks up on that. John five forty: You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That's how it happens. That's how it works. I do it. You come to me. Abram, Sarai, by the way, remember where they acquired Hagar? Noted in verse 1, she's an Egyptian handmaid. They picked her up on another ill-advised time of ingenuity and resourcefulness when they went down to Egypt. Back in chapter 12, God didn't say go down to Egypt. They just went. Famine in Canaan. Let's go to the world. We can figure this out. Trusting as far as the eyes can see, is bad for vision. It causes us not to truly see. The more we trust ourselves, trust what we think, what we know, some could call that eye trouble (laughs) because I'm relying on me. Look at what it does to Sarai in verse 2. She says, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing. It's his fault. He made a promise and now, He can't quite follow through, so it's his fault. He has caused this. And one of the clearest signs of vision trouble is blaming God, or what we sometimes do, presume upon his intentions. I know God wants this to happen. How can I make what he wants to happen, how can I make that happen? We think that's walking in his will. No, walking in his will is trusting him. Walking in his will is waiting for him to show you the next move, not making the next move saying, Come on, God, we got this. It's bad vision. Christopher, the other day I was talking with him and and he asked me, He said, Dad, is God intentional? I'm like, Whoa, 13 years old. Is God intentional? It's a big question there, son. What do you mean, is God intentional? I knew what he meant, I knew where he was going. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes I do know. He said, did he intend for this to take so long? Did he intend for me still to be in Ghana? Did he intend for the government to... W- is God intentional? He's asking that, that very difficult question that we sometimes ask. If God is God, how can this be happening? Did he intend for this pain or difficulty, or crisis, or did he intend for me to have to wait so long? I said, Christopher, God says my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Isaiah 55, verse 8. I said, you know what, but Christopher, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. It was such a good moment for me, a reminder that when you don't understand what God is doing or know why or how he's moving, look to his character, look to his nature, look at who he is. I don't know what he's doing. Fine. Look at who he is. You don't have to know what he's doing. He's invited you to know him. And in knowing him, we have peace in what he's doing. We can trust he actually does have a handle on this life. I don't always know what he's doing, but I know him. And in him, there is peace. Well, Sarai blamed God to justify taking matters into her own hands. And she says, please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Okay, brothers, always listen to the voice of your wife. Happy wife, happy life. But I'm going to add this caveat, so long as your wife is listening to God. Always listen to her, so long as she's listening to him. If she's not listening to him, if she's doubting, if she's struggling, if she's turning away, brothers, be a man. Be a man of God. Love her enough, love him enough to follow him. To lead in his direction if she's struggling. And it works the other way around as well. Wives, if the husband is struggling, love him, but follow Jesus. That's where our leadership truly is. Micah chapter 7, verse 5, interesting word from the Lord through the prophet. He says, Do not trust in a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. <laughs> Her son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You know, Jesus took that prophetically and said that's the way it's gonna be. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. If no one else hears me, if no one else sees me, my God hears, my God sees. He is El Roy the God who sees. We haven't even gotten there in the story. Verse three, after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so he's 85 years old now, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. So they, they did it right, kind of. He didn't just sleep with her. He married her as a second wife. Again, not approved by God. He never said this was okay. Bigamy is not all right, or, or polygamy is not all right with the father. And it says in verse four, he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So between the hers and the she's in this verse, what it's saying is Hagar the prenatal is looking down on Sarai the barren with contempt, which is a thing too. Even this has been recorded in ancient history where the, the maid becomes pregnant, and the pregnant woman looks down on the the barren. I I can do what you can't. And so there's contempt now coming from Hagar, the servant, toward her mistress, and Sarah will have none of it. Verse 5, Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. Wait a minute, whose idea was this in the first place? Let's be honest here. Now Sarai's all down on Abram as if it's his fault. First it was God's fault that things weren't working, so she had to help him. Now when she takes matters into her own hands, sins, does the wrong thing, and her husband joins her, now she's blaming him. You see how when we get in the way of God, we mess everything up, even in our own personal relationships? See how quickly we turn our own blunders into blaming someone else? We so quickly want to throw it off of ourselves onto another. How many relationships are are divided and broken by disobedience to God? Listen, that's what happens. In fact, in my opinion, at the root of all broken relationships, there is disobedience to God. Somewhere in there, someone's not listening to the Father. Someone's not paying attention to Jesus. There's a lack of simply trusting Him. Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her, parents and, or from her presence. And that's the backstory. The father of the faithful now is the father of the flimsy father of the feeble, (laughs) Abram, the spineless. Sarai gets her back up and Abram quickly backs down. Well, do whatever you want. So at this point in the story, let me just ask, aren't you glad our hope doesn't rest on humanity? Aren't you glad we aren't called to trust in a man or a woman or a person in our life? That's the one you follow. He's our great hope. She's going to lead us out of this mess. No way. No way. We are called to trust in a God who sees, but but we need to see him. And unfortunately, through verse 6 in the story, so far, it looks like no one but Kilroy was here. Where's God in this? Why didn't he stop Sarai and Abram from making this mess? Where is he? Where is God in his promise? And here's where the plot thickens, verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, the Bible is specific to tell us. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now, understand this, God knows exactly where she's going. I find it interesting that he raises the issue. Where have you come from? He knows. Where are you going? He knows. He meets her at this place called Shur. You need to know Shur is the border town of the Negev and the Sinai Desert. Where's Hagar going? Back to Egypt. She's headed home. You know, I was at first thinking that she's running aimlessly, kind of like the, the, the Proverbs passage where there is no vision that the people run wild. And she's not just running wild. She's running back down to Egypt. She's hurrying home. She has no other alternative, so she thinks. So she is running hair unbraided heedlessly back down to Egypt. And the first thing the angelic messenger of the Lord, he, he does is he gets Hagar to stop and recognize her predicament. Hold on there, gal. Where have you come from? Kind of a mess there. Where are you going? Do you really know? Have you ever been in that place? I'm not talking about a well in the border town of Shure. Have you ever been on the run, either lost or wild or or worse, heedlessly heading back to the old life? Isn't this interesting that what Hagar does is what so many of us do when things don't go right. We think with the Lord, we go back to the old life. We slide back to the old ways, because that's comfortable. At least I remember that. I know how to move in that environment, that natural place. When things aren't going right, and crises happen. The Bible has a word for that, a phrase actually for that. It's called dog vomit. Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. God often will meet us at the crossroads of our crisis to keep us from going back to ways that are not helpful, that would be damaging to us. And by the way, if you're in that place today, maybe you're at a crossroads like that, God gave me this yesterday. I'm going to offer this as a word of the Lord for you if you are at a crisis point and thinking about just giving up and walking away. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Remember what we said, your confidence is not in another person, not a man, not a woman, not a friend or family member or a spouse. Your confidence is in the Lord. Don't throw that away. Don't wander from that. That's... He's your hope. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For in yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. That's trust me. That's how you live. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. If you're in crisis, do not go back. Have confidence in the one who can lead you through. Jesus will see you through the crisis. And remember this verse, and it's one of my favorites over many years now, Proverbs eighteen ten: The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. You need a safe place? Run to the name of the Lord. And what is the name of the Lord? Jesus. You run to Jesus, verse 9. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Whoa, whoa, wait wait a minute, Lord. That's unexpected in this world. You want me to go right back into that turmoil and subservience? Mm -hmm. You want me to go back into the place that the crisis began? Are you kidding me? No, that's what I want. Go back into the mess. Don't look to your circumstances to dictate your security. Don't think if we could just clear this mess out, we'll be fine. Oftentimes, the crisis is exactly where God wants us to be. But he's our strong tower in the crisis. Turn to him. We we try so hard to change circumstance when everything's going wrong. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. You trust me. You run to me. You call out to me. Rebellion and running are not the answer. In fact, in the Bible, do you realize God rarely says run away? He rarely says take off, flee, except to flee immorality. That he says, yeah, flee that. Flee evil. Run away from those things. But what he tends to say about our lives is stay put And submit. Stay put and submit. You got a problem with your boss? Stay put and submit. Got a problem in your marriage? Stay put and submit one to another. Are you at odds with a parent? Stay put and submit. Are you Hagar racing away from Sarai? Go back. Stay put and submit to her, that is God's answer to her. Don't run from the crisis, run to the Christ in repentance and rest, in quietness and trust. Verse 10. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child." You will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. All right, let's pause for a moment. I have been asked by a number of folks if I was gonna do a prophecy update this morning. Of course, you know what's happened with Iran and Everyone got real excited, and there are several prophecy updates that came out on January 5th. Several people, you know, immediately trying to respond. I, I wanna, I'm gonna give you a little prophecy update, a little mini one inserted right here in the teaching, but I wanna say something about prophecy updates I think is important. Prophecy updates are not about soothsaying. They're not about knowing exactly what is happening today in this precise moment. In fact, as we've said many times, prophecy is best understood looking back. You know, prophecy fulfilled is really easy to interpret. I can tell you all about the first coming of Jesus and show you all the prophecies fulfilled. And I can talk about, and we have, talk about prophecies fulfilled all the way up even to present day. But when Iran threatens and when the president takes out Soleimani and these things begin to happen, don't immediately think, okay, now we've got to know right now in this moment, you know what's coming. Don't you? Jesus, thank you. And you know what's happening. The Bible has told us, we went through the Revelation study, we have a sense, we have a vision, if you will, of what is before us by the word of God. So be careful with prophecy updates that try to tie every nuance of everything in culture that's happening in the immediate, trying to tie and say, oh, that fulfills this. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Walk it out with intelligence and we see what the Word says to us. Now, I can share this with you. What is it that the Scriptures say about the tumultuous turmoil that is ongoing in the Middle East? Well, this is a prophecy right here. Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, and he will live to the east of his brothers. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Note this, the phrase, to the east. He's going to live to the east of his brothers, is Penay. Alpane in the Hebrew is the exact same word that describes Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, verse 9, a mighty hunter, alpane to the Lord, in the face of the Lord, or in rebellion to the Lord. What the phrase means literally is in defiance of. This Ishmael will be in defiance of his brothers. His hand will be against them. Their hands will be against him. Now track this with me. This wild donkey, this defiant one, he's the father of the Arabic people. Now, I'm I'm not getting racist here, so don't walk away until I'm done explaining this. Ishmael is the father of the Arabic people coming, Abraham to Ishmael, Arabic, Abraham to Isaac, Jewish people. Abraham is, yeah, the father of, of both. But through Ishmael come the Arabic people, also through Edom, another offshoot that we'll get to later on, who was Esau. But through Ishmael, father of Arabic people across the Middle East, this is prophetic of the history of Middle Eastern defiance, violence, and aggression. And I'll prove it to you. Iran's intentions are to drive the U.S. presence out of the Middle East. I think that's pretty obvious. Iran's secondary intentions, equally as obvious, is to drive Israel into the sea. By the way, if you weren't aware of this, on Christmas Day, something that was not reported in the U.S. media at all, I mean, as maybe a tiny little spot tucked away at the end of the broadcast, Iran and Russia and Turkey formed a military alliance. There's a prophecy update for you. Iran, Russia, and Turkey, all three of the primary names given in the Gog-Magog prophecy of Ezekiel 38, formed a military alliance. They're doing war games together. They're standing together militarily. Turkey, who for a long time was trying to get into NATO, now has turned its sights to Russia, and we see the whole Gog-Magog situation coming to play as these three nations who have long fought each other are now coming together militarily to stand against the world. But here's the question. What would happen in the Middle East if the United States left and Israel was gone? Would there be peace? There never has been. There's never been peace. There's never been anything other than tribal and national warfare in the middle east and the only thing really that has united the arab nations at least in terms of their leadership as a unified people has been israel and their hatred for israel not all of them not all arabs again but defiance is in the nature tracking all the way back to ishmael A wild donkey of a man in defiance of all his brothers. Now, again, someone might say, Pastor Rick, you are being racist. Let me get a little more explicit for you. Defiance is in the human nature. It's not just being Arabic that would make a person defiant. Look at yourself in the mirror. That is part and parcel of who we are. And I mean no disrespect to anyone of Arabic descent. I'm of Scottish descent. We were savage and wore kilts. <laughs> the truth is this. Whatever your lineage, whatever your history is, is not the issue. You're not forced to be that way. Anyway, then a human being must be a defiant, rebellious sinner. No, you see, you come to Jesus, and he transforms and changes all of our heritages into the inheritance of the children of God. Jew or Greek, slave or free... Male or female, there is no difference. All are one in Christ Jesus. I have dear Arabic brothers and sisters in the Middle East, in Israel. And so the issue here is just that there is a prophetic problem that is already being described in the Middle East. There will be an attitude of warfare and defiance and fist against fist. But Jesus, oh, as many as have received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, John 1, verse 12. Ephesians 1, 13, And Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Listen, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. How's that for a 2020 vision? We have a view to our redemption. I can look ahead and see salvation. I can see being in the presence of Jesus. I can see I have an inheritance. I can see a future out ahead of me that makes all of the turmoil and crises of this world nothing because I can see what really is to come. But Genesis 16, 12 prophetically describes the state of the Middle East from time immemorial. But there's a greater focus here, a bigger issue to the whole entire story. This is the first time in the Bible first mention of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh in Hebrew. He is called the Malach Yahweh 58 times in the Hebrew scriptures. Another 11 times he's referred to as the angel of God, the Malach Elohim, Malach Yahweh. You know him by another name, Jesus Christ. Now, when we first started studying through the Bible 16 years ago, I I had my my doubts. I didn't wanna jump out there and, and say, this is Jesus. I wanted to be sure. But it kept happening over and over and over. Every time I saw the angel of the Lord, I kept seeing the same thing. I kept seeing the same person, and to this day I'm absolutely convinced every one of the 58 times that he's called the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh, and every one of the 11 times he's called the angel of God, the Malach Elohim, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I don't doubt it in the least. It's always a reference to the pre-incarnate Messiah. Now, you might say, I mean, I accept that Jesus pre-existed his coming, but are you really going to be that dogmatic about this? How do you know? Well, I know this. In every context where Malach Yahweh is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, he speaks in the first-person authority of God. As he speaks, this is God speaking. If you notice, even back where, where he says in verse 10, I will greatly multiply your descendants. Who's speaking? The angel of the Lord. Who has the power to greatly multiply the descendants of Hagar? God. I will do this, he says. I got this, he says. He speaks in the first person with all the authority of God. In every context, he's referred to as an angel, a malach, But in the same setting, he is also called God. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. There are those, and there's a a theology out there that says, well, no, the angel of the Lord, he just speaks, he just has the right to say what God wants him to say. Well, then he would be saying, the Lord says. He wouldn't say, I say to you. He wouldn't dare, no right-minded angel would dare speak as though they were God themselves. That would be blasphemy. I say to you. Doesn't that sound kind of like Jesus? You have heard that it was said, well, I say to you. See, he put himself in the position of God. By the way, the word angel, the malach in Hebrew is messenger. There is another Hebrew word for angel that is not used here. This is malach, the messenger of God, the one who brings the message of God, which is exactly what Jesus does. And note again in verse 13 that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So in the very text, Moses writing Genesis recognizes it was Yahweh who spoke to her because Lord here, verse 13, is Yahweh. And so she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her Elroy. You are God who sees. She names him. She calls him. She knows who she's talking to. She is right on. It is God talking. This is Christ prior to his first coming. And get this. Understand this that the God of all glory, power, and praise sees and appears to a fearful fugitive, not to a faithful father. He sees and he appears to a runaway slave, not to an authentic, genuine seeker. Which is marvelous to me because You know, we had that big wave of seeker-sensitive churches several years ago. We're gonna go out and find those who are really genuinely seeking for the Lord. Hey, the Lord goes after those who are running away from him. The Lord pursues those who are doggedly rebelling against him. That's the marvelous turnaround. In fact, some of the most wonderful conversions that I've seen in my life have been people who one day were adamantly opposed to the Lord and the next day were just praising his name. Because God doesn't give up with the rebel. He's not afraid of the fugitive. He goes for them. He seeks them out as he does here with Hagar. This tells us something of the nature of God. Listen, Jesus said, Matthew 18, verse 12. Actually, I think it's Luke. Anyway, we'll find out. Somebody look that up and make sure that's the right passage. But if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That's what Elroy means. That's who Elroy is. He is the God who sees the lost, the runaway, the fugitive. And in verse 13, she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Hagar is rightly shocked if she is actually, if she's just seen an angel, okay, but if she's seen God, have I remained alive? Doesn't the Bible say no one can see God and live? And so with a little bit of insight here, Hagar says, I should be dead have I seen him? There's another way to translate this. You can also translate her saying, have I even remained alive seeing after my seer? In other words, have I remained alive seeing the back of my seer, looking after him, seeing, as it were, the, backside, the back of my seer? Who does that sound like? Moses. Moses. Moses, who had that encounter with God, let me read it to you quickly here. It's Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So either Hagar could see, her, see him because she was a woman. <laughs> see, no man can see me and live. Some of you wives may use that with your husbands later. But the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me. You shall stand in the rock. It will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until you have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And that's, I think, what Hagar saw. Same as Moses, that this woman, and this is remarkable. Hey, it's one thing for Moses to see the backside of glory for Moses to see God's glory trailing off. But Hagar, this Egyptian handmaid, this nobody runaway? Oh, she may have been the only woman to see what Moses would later see, and that is the back of the God who sees. There's another way to see this, however, and that is, have I seen this one? Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? God did a way, make a way that we could see him face to face, didn't he? And his name is, again, Jesus. Jesus. John 1:18. no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has made him comprehensible, understandable. He has expressed us God, the angel of the Lord, which is exactly who Hagar is talking to, Verse 14, now watch this. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And this is the first mention of beer in the Bible. <laughs> there it is. Beer Lahai Roy. I'm being facetious here, but, but truly, listen, this word beer is the first time you see the word. And it's the first mention of the word Well. In the Bible, the well of the living one seeing me, Beer Lahai Roy. How interesting. Where did the angel of the Lord meet this lost, lonely, heedless woman at a well? He met the woman at the well. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 4, you can turn there or just listen. Verse 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, being a Jew, ask for a drink since... I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. By the way, they would have very little in terms of even dealings with women. Do you know back in the, in the times of Hammurabi, actually since then, ancient rabbis, there's actually an ancient rabbinical prayer that goes like this. God, thank you that I am a man and not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. In that order, such was the attitude of men, not of God, who sought out Hagar, who now seeks out this woman. How do you ask me a woman and a Samaritan? And Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty And not come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Do you realize what just happened? He just said, Where do you come from and where are you going? He just called her right into the midst of her circumstance as he did with Hagar. Same thing. Go call your husband by asking that question. Where have you come from? What's your life been? (laughs) I don't have a husband. You're right. And you've had five. (laughs) And now you're living with a man who you're not even married to. He's fully aware of the crisis of this woman's life. He knows exactly where she comes from and he knows where she is going the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then they have a conversation about worship and prophets in this mountain versus Jerusalem. And finally, down in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am, I am. I am. I am he. And she got this revelation, this woman at the well, not because she came looking for Jesus, but because he came looking for her. Same with, the, with Hagar. She wasn't looking for God. She wasn't looking to get saved. She wasn't looking for anything. She was running unrestrained, heedlessly, back to the old life, and he met both women at the well. Both women. Both were thirsty both were outcast. both were lost, both were lonely, both were heedless until they saw Elroy, the God who sees. Back in Genesis 16, therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, well of the living one who sees me. Behold, it's between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Two names to note in the story. El Roy, God who sees, and Ishmael, which means God will hear. God will hear. God who sees, God will hear. The Lord, by the way, the Lord named Ishmael. You shall call him this. This wasn't Hagar's idea or Abram's or Sarai's. It was the Lord who said, Name him, God will hear. And he begins, he throws out this promise to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. As Paul quotes Joel, Romans 10:13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isaiah 65, 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. How's that possible? Because he is God who hears, and he is God who sees. And he sees you right now, in crisis or at peace. He hears you right now, should you call out to him. And the best vision that we can have for 2020 or any year is simply a vision of Christ. Let's just see the God who sees. Let's call out to the God who hears. Seeing Jesus, see... It's it's his insight and perception that guides us. It's his perspective. It's his eternal vantage point. True vision comes as we trust his vision. Like I I know I've shared this example before. I've said this to my kids many times, trying to explain how do we trust God is like getting in the backseat of the car when you're a kid. You have no idea where mom or dad are driving you to. David gets in the back of the car and off we head to Taekwondo. He can't get himself there. He has no idea how to get there. Trust me, I've asked him. He just gets in the car and knows that when the car stops and the door opens, we're at Taekwondo, we'll get there. He trusts me. And that's what we're talking about. God has the vision, not you, not me. John 20, 29, Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who who did not see, yet believe. It is trust in him. He is all the vision you will ever need. He's not the elusive Kilroy who shows up and disappears and no one really knows who he is. He is Elroy, the God who sees. Ishmael tells us God will hear. Proverbs 5.21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. That is where we've come from and where we're going. He knows He's aware, he sees, and he meets us at the well. And there he promises us, whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus, you are the living water. We know this. We believe this. You are the thirst-quenching savior. And Father, our thanks and our praise belong to you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray, help us to see Jesus. Give us vision of Jesus, your nature, Lord, your character traits, the fruit that is of your spirit. Help us to see then what you see and how you see this world. Open our eyes, Lord, the eyes of our hearts by faith to trust you. And I pray as we head into what for us is a new year, Lord, that we will do so with a new faith, a restored, refreshed faith, to trust you in all things. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.